Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress, author, and talk show host, Busy Phillips. For over 20 years, Busy Phillips has been navigating the highs and lows of being an actress in Hollywood. With unrivaled determination and a strong belief in herself, Busy left her home in Arizona at 18 years old for Los Angeles to pursue acting and briefly college. Her dream came true sophomore year when she was cast in the cult TV show Freaks and Geeks. And since that time, Busy's been a staple of American television with roles in popular shows like Dawson's Creek, Cougar Town, and Vice Principals. Despite her success, Busy hasn't been immune to the uglier elements of being a woman in Hollywood. She's dealt with body shaming, inequality issues, and harassment by male colleagues, while also fighting the insecurity that comes with the job. But overcoming challenges is in Busy's DNA. As she describes it, I only do things the hard way. It's the only interesting way to do anything, and it's a part of my personality. In response to her traumatic experiences, and as someone who has wanted to only be seen ever since childhood, Busy chose to write a memoir titled, This Will Only Hurt a Little, to give herself a voice and to memorialize her story. Between the book's success and the large social media following she garnered by posting snippets of her daily life, Busy had an epiphany. She thought, maybe I need to lean into the thing that people are responding to and saying is really interesting. Well, that led to the creation of Busy's late night talk show, Busy Tonight, currently airing on E. She spent her entire career in the shoes of different characters, and now she gets to be herself. Busy joins off camera to talk about the double standard that exists for actresses, losing a job she knew was hers because the television network deemed her overweight and the first gig she ever booked as a life-size Barbie. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Busy. Hi, Sam. Thank you for doing this. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Well, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. Really? And I was kind of waiting for the next thing uh-huh, because uh-huh. we met on Cougar Town. Correct. And I directed an episode. That is. And that's how we met. True. But I have to confess something to you, which is that I was really intimidated. I think specifically working with you at the beginning of that show. Really? Yes. I wasn't one of the people that watched Freaks and Geeks at the beginning. I'm not going to no lie. No one did. And that everybody lies. Right. So I appreciate the honesty. Yeah, but I think I had just watched it. And I think you were kind of playing the girl in high school that, like, that type intimidated yeah. me in high school. Yeah. Because I was a little, like, I was a little late blooming you were kid. You were Sam, Sam Weir. You were little totally. Sam. And then the f- very first scene we did... The first day of my episode, I think you had to make out with Krista. What? Do you remember that? No. Was that on the show? Yes. It was sort of like <laughs> first take, first morning, it's you and Krista. Yeah. And and it was like, it was just sort of like, you know, walking into walking into an established set always, on an established set. Always hard. And everyone's buddies on yeah. the crew and yeah. the cast. It was just sort of like that feeling, which I'm sure you've had as an actress, of... They're going. Someone's going to come on the loudspeaker and say, "We made a terrible yeah, mistake." Yeah, you don't belong here. Yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting too, you know, you have like on a show that goes on for a period of time, you have like the same directors that come back that do multiple episodes. Right. So the cast knows them, the crew knows them, and then occasionally you get like the one-offs, the outlier, the, the outlier right. who comes in, and, like, and that's Why is and we're here? like, "Yeah, who's this guy? What's this guy doing?" Yeah. But I had been prepped. 
I had been told who you were. I had already Googled you. You just came vetted and highly recommended. Right. And so, and, and then I did my own research. So I was, it wasn't, yeah, I was like excited to work with you. And it was funny. I think by lunch the first day I was like, oh yeah. But I will give you a compliment, which is that, you know, that show at that point had been running for several, a few, more than a few years. Okay. And there was a lot of actors that maybe had their sides and... Oh, yeah. ...were sort of learning their lines on yeah. set and hiding them in drawers mm-hmm. right before we called action. Right. And, and you had all your lines down. Yeah, like, well, that's my party trick, Sam. It is. I is that memori- something that's... No, but I can memorize anything like that. Since you were a kid. Yeah. And at that point, it was at its peak. So I wasn't, to be honest, what, I wasn't preparing... I would just me- I could just memorize it easier than everyone else, and I would do it while I was getting my hair and makeup done. That's yeah. Amazing. So yeah. So but that's like you know I just have like a crazy memory. The writers I feel like would fuck with me because they were annoyed by it. Really? Yeah. They would write these big chunks of dialogue for Lori that a lot of times would get cut for time, but right. and they would hand it to me, you know, like right after after rehearsal even. Like we actually thought this would be funnier and they would give me a whole new thing to memorize before we started shooting. And you could just do it. Yeah, I could. I wonder what that is. Do your kids have that? I don't know yet. We'll see. My kids are have so much of my shit that it's <laughs> You hope they get some good stuff. I hope they get the good stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, I really do. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We will see. We will see. Well, I'm kind of amazed by you because at that time, obviously, you seem super together uh-huh. and confident <laughs> and in command and everything. And then I read your book, This Will Only Hurt a Little. Yes. And I want to get all into that and, and talk about it. But yeah. what I wanted to say was that when I met you, I had no idea the turmoil that yeah. was going on in your life. And what struck me most in sort of getting deeper into your story was how much anxiety, how much fear, how much the rejection affected you Mm -hmm. and everything, which led to what you're doing now, which is you have a talk show four nights a week on E, which is such a left turn from when we both saw each other last. We both have made odd turns. Yeah. I I mean, it is and it isn't. It feels like an a natural progression in so many ways. First of all, I said to you right before we started, you know, I love to talk. Yeah. I really do. And I really love people. I really find people interesting. I think we have that in common as well. And I had been sort of asked over the years in my career if I would ever be interested in doing a talk show producer had asked me before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always felt like my love is acting. I I love it with every fiber of my being in being, you know, figuring out characters and doing that work and all of that stuff. Um, And so, no, I don't want to do a talk show. Like to me, I always, in in my head, I always thought that that would be giving up something. Right. But what ended up happening post Cougar Town and I did Vice Principals and, you know, and I found an Instagram sort of started happening at the same time and I was doing these stories every day and I was getting all this attention for it was that I had that epiphany that I think only comes a little bit later in life, really, where I was like, oh, mm, maybe I need to lean into the thing, the message, like that people are responding to. Like lean into the thing that everyone's saying to me, this is really interesting. And we got this call, like the New Yorker wants to profile you for your Instagram stories. And I thought, 
the fuck? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what? What are you talking about? Wh- why? Are they making fun of me? Is this a bit? Are they going to make fun of me? Is that where you, where you yeah. went first? Yeah. I thought that, they, I thought that it was going to be like a snarky bit thing, but it wasn't. It, and then it, and then that was when I sort of my perception of it sh- sort of shifted to to where you could be yourself and see a different response, mm-hmm. and that response felt good and was good and yeah yeah. Well, I was already starting to get it was already starting to be a thing where I was getting my agents at ICM. I had to get you know get a brand agent at my agency because they were getting so many incoming calls for brands that wanted me to post about their brands or right. you know and pay me money and so when that started I talk a lot in my book about you know how difficult it is I think to be an artist and the finances and you know people have this misconception we saw it with Jeffrey Owens bagging groceries at Trader Joe's right you know that once you're on like a hit television show that you're set for life and the truth is most working for higher actors don't ever reach a point where they're set for life so you have to find ways to supplement your income and the Instagram thing happened at a time when I was you know, post-vice principals, but I was getting sent a lot of things and being offered a lot of things, and it just wasn't feeling right to me as an actor that I wanted to do these things. And and then beyond that, my girls were very little. They still are. Yeah. I didn't want to move to Atlanta for six months for some fucking dumb show. Like, who cares? Why, why would I do that? They're only this little for a minute. Yeah. Like, I have the perspective, at least, that, like... This is all almost over with my kids. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm doing a thing now with my 10-year-old daughter, Birdie, where I'm trying really hard to make like a concerted effort to, as much as she'll let me, like cuddle her. Yes. And kiss her and like give her all of that mom stuff. Because I feel it, like I feel it happen. I feel it coming. Yeah. I'm going to start crying. It's really hard for me. I bet that was a hard one for us because our older daughter, for years, could not go to sleep without four checks and the the stories and the back tickles and the and now she's like, no, I'm good. And you're like, but don't you want some back tickles? No, Dad, I just want I just want to read and turn off my light and go to sleep. And we try to keep I try so hard to keep that in mind, but it does get overwhelming. It you does because we have the non-sleeper too. Yeah, the non-sleepers. That's a tough road. And I got the sense from your book that you were a non-sleeper. Yeah, and like also that's been really weird and triggering being a mom and seeing these things pop up in my own daughters where I'm like, fuck, why did I think I should have children? Hmm. Like, why did I think I should do that and, like, pass on this stuff to them? And, like, you know, like, I've had dark moments where I've, like, apologized to Mark. Like, I'm sorry. I know all of this stuff is me and I know it. It's my my genetics. It's my DNA. It's my fucking family. It's not yours. Do you really feel that way? Because think of the life force that you are that you also give to them, that they're going to have you and you've taken basically a life that everyone else in your town, no one else just went off and, and like sparkled her way right to like this incredible career that you basically hustled and made up along the way. I've hustled, man. I am yeah. a fucking hustler. That's you are for hustler. sure. <laughs> and, I, and I think like you're not giving yourself credit for even right now on this show that you invented a show out of thin air yeah. based on the fact of you just being yourself. That's a powerful message Thanks. for a girl. Thanks, Sam. 
I yeah. hope that they, I hope that they're able to see that, you know, at some point in their lives, my girls. Oh, appreciate I've... it and understand it. I had kind of an amazing thing when my book came out in the fall. I got, we got an email from um, my little one's kindergarten teacher saying, Cricket is so proud of you and said that you, you know, came into class today. My mom's book comes out today. My mom wrote a whole book and it comes out today. And um, all the kids were asking questions about it. And so we were, we were wondering if maybe you wanted to come in and talk to the kindergarten class about what being an author is. Because they're all just learning, you know, obviously, how to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like how to make letters. and Learning what make, a book is. Yeah, yeah. And so I went into the kindergarten and... Um, and I sat and gave like a little talk about writing the book and they had really cute, interesting questions. They really wanted to know how I got my picture on the cover of the book. <laughs> that was like very important. How did I make sure that it was pink? Yeah. I was like, also a great question, yes. They didn't want to know about the sexual harassment. No, I did not <laughs> fill them in on my dark times in Hollywood or traumatic teen years. But yeah, it was cute and I could see in my little one's face like how beaming she was that I was her mom doing this thing, yes. you know? It was cool. I think as parents, we think everything we say will be the things that they remember, right. but it's everything we do. Right, I had to like start you know, I talk in my book, too, about, like, my own body things and Hollywood and right. body shaming and all that fucking weirdness. But I try to be very aware of not talking about my body or other women's bodies in my house. It just doesn't fucking – I just can't fucking do it. I know I have, still have friends, feminists, you know, strong women who will be, you know, in the summer at my house. And they'll be like, oh, I can't put on a bikini it's like, fuck off. Yes, you can. Right, right. And all of our children are watching. And what do you think that they, th when their hero, the woman they look up to the most, these little kids are like, oh, my mom can't put on a bikini. Yeah, there's How could I ever her. put on a bikini? Yeah. she's fabulous. Yes. She's my whole world. Yeah. And if she can't. Yeah. And I remember all that messaging as a little girl. You know, my, my mom's like, constant trips to Weight Watchers. And I failed another diet. And like, just the things she would say to her friends when they run into right. each other at the grocery store. Like, that kind of talk. That's the stuff that, like, worms its way into children's brains and causes them to have all the things. Hey, folks, Sam Jones here. Let's pause the conversation for a minute so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular, with Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Off Camera a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at offcamera.robinhood.com. Now back to the show. I was curious if there was some shift that happened in your head where you're like, 
I need to write this, or this is the right thing to do for me. Yeah, or like a catharsis, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there are many different types of memoirs, and certainly in the like sphere of celebrity in Hollywood, there are many different types. Right. You know, when I was in my 20s, I started, I've always been a writer. I've always loved writing. And come from a long line of writers, if you ask my mother. I would always journal. I kept tons of journals, so many. Poetry, bad, terrible poetry. Thank God the internet didn't exist when I was in high school. <laughs> For several reasons. For so many reasons, but also, but mostly so that like my bad poetry wasn't ever put into the world. I know, isn't that on. a funny thing? Because if you're a kid now and you start writing journals, you're publishing them immediately. Pretty much. I guess what I was curious about is when you sat down and said, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do this, did you know that you were going to have to face some tough chapters and, and you knew the yeah. hard parts that were going to come, that you were going to have to dredge through your memories yeah. and sort of... Well, I will tell you this. I only do things the hard way. It's the only way that's interesting to me. I really, it's like part of my personality. And, you know, I think that probably the editor, because it was a blind book deal, I didn't do a treatment or anything. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that maybe her idea initially of what it was going to be was probably more a lighthearted romp through Hollywood and Instagram and being a mom and Instagram stories. Right. And in our first calls, I think that was what was sort of said to me. But I always knew, because I had like written th some stories working through some of the teen years and preteen years, um, when I was in my 20s, I took a writing class, a memoir writing class. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and one of my downtimes between jobs. Um, yeah, after my heart had been broken by that guy, and I was like looking for something to do, and I took a class at was um, that Otis. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know him? No. Okay. <laughs> People do. Now I want to meet no, him. No, he exists. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. I feel very protective of you after reading the book. Mm. I feel like, yeah, I'd like to go back to some of these guys in your, in your past and have a word with them. <sighs> I think it's all worked out well for me, so. Ultimately. Yeah, but still. But still. But still, it's hard. Um, but so I knew immediately what I wanted to do with the book. But I think that when Trump got elected, I had, I like lost my shit. I like lost my shit. Like a lot of, especially women. Uh -huh. And I just felt like I was done. I mean, you bring up these men in the past that you would like to go punch them, but I... But I really felt like, for the first time in my life, like, why the fuck do women hold on to all this shit? Like, why? What are, what are we protecting who from? Exactly. And in the book, there are a lot of stories in there that basically you let people off the hook. We're told to hold it, man. We are told to fucking hold it. And I don't want that for my daughters. It would break my heart if I knew that they were doing that that they felt like because of their gender, because of their fucking vagina, that they had to like hold something that, um, that was perpetrated on them. And turn it to shame. And turn it to shame and yeah. turn it inward and turn it to their own self-loathing and terrible feelings. And so, you know, I, I did it as honestly as I could and it's complicated for me to write about a lot of those things and talk about a lot of those things and, but, you know, I thought 
this is the this is the thing that I'm going to put into this world because who fucking knows? Maybe there's like a 13-year-old girl who reads my book or 17 or fucking 25-year-old woman and maybe they or maybe there's a man that reads it and they're like, I had a really interesting talk with Mark Marin and he was like that the story about your your rape and your sexual assault like that really resonated with me. Like everyone knew that girl at high school that that happened to, you know? And I was like, yeah, dude, that's fucked up. Yeah. And what do you do about that as yeah. a man? As a young boy, well, uh, if you hear that, if you know that, you know it's true. When I read that story, I could see the steps of your thought process mm-hmm. of, oh, I, I like this group of guys, mm-hmm. I want to be included, mm-hmm. and you think it, something's going to be some way, and then when it turns, mm-hmm. and it's no longer that, and then you don't have control of the situation, and you get taken advantage of, you get taken advantage of. I could understand where your teenage brain said, I. That was my fault. Right. And that's the part where that kid who did it to you, he knew the whole time that it was wrong. And he's counting on the system to protect him because right. it always has. Because it always has. And, it, you know, we have to change it. Yeah. So I do feel like there was just this collective shift when Donald Trump got elected where women had the realization that we're deeply hated for our, our gender and deeply disrespected and and we have to do something about it and our silence maybe helped keep predators in positions of power but if we start coming out of the woodworks and speaking about our experiences that there's there are all of these men humans who who don't hate who don't hate women who don't disrespect them who don't think that they're less than who will be truly shocked by what they're hearing have you been shocked by anything uh, that you've heard completely yeah you know one of the things I, I i'm not by the way well, by anything i think especially in my own industry in our own industry to find out what was protected and what was allowed mm-hmm. and and gosh you touch on that in your book you touch on it with james franco you mm-hmm. touch on it on set you know, with the set painters and the right. little comments they would make, oh or the, God. or not getting a job because of too fat. Exactly, and I guess to me the heartbreaking thing there is that obviously you got into this because you love acting. Mm-hmm. You wrote monologues for yourself, mm-hmm. and then slowly every incident like that chips mm-hmm. away at the thing that you love. Yeah, and that is not a male experience. Right, that is correct. Yeah. <sighs> So when you were writing this, did uh-huh. you feel or were you conscious of the whole time that one day your daughters are going to read this? Yeah, yeah. I thought a lot about that. Yeah. I want my kids to be able to know who I am and who I was completely. I read this thing that really made an impact on me. This writer, her mother had passed away and she always had felt like her mother was an enigma and her mother was sort of this like larger than life personality who was a writer herself and like had, you know, they had a very complicated relationship and maybe there was like jealousy on the mother's behalf of the, of the woman and, and the mother was dying and she said to the, the woman, you know, when I'm when I'm gone, there are journals like locked away downstairs, and they're all yours. They're all for you. And the end of the piece is that she went down and got the journals, and they were all blank. 
And it was like the final fuck you from her mother. Wow. Like, you never get to know me. You I, never get to know me. I was not expecting that. No, either. you're not expecting that. I wasn't either. That's why it made such a huge impact on me. And I'm like, I'm not leaving blank journals for my girls. I'm going to leave them the thing that I wish I had from my mother or, you know, my father or my grandparents or any of the thing. I want them to know all of it. Here it is. Hey folks, let's take a short break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Calm. That's right, Calm. You're listening to this podcast right now, and I hope you're calm because stress is a worldwide epidemic. We're working longer hours, we're inundated with the constant news cycle, and we're more connected than ever before. Stress is a part of life, but it can very easily affect our overall well-being. And that's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More than 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. If you head to calm.com slash off, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. There are also sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax. Head to the magical lavender fields of southern France with Stephen Fry, or explore the moonlit jungles of Africa with Leona Lewis. They even have soothing music and more. So right now, off-camera listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash off. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash off. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash off. Get calm and stop stressing. Now back to the show. The thing that I had the hardest time with in the book was your inner, your self-critic, your self-identity, mm-hmm. the way you talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure your mom and dad didn't know what was going on inside your head. No, and, I, and in fact, you know, the book was really hard for my parents, which is understandable. I'm sure. Um, my dad did say, I wish I'd known more when you were a kid. Were you close to your dad growing up? Mm-mm. How come? No. He worked a lot. It was like a very, it's weird because even though I grew up in the 80s, like I feel like we had like a very 50s structured home. Oh, really? Do you know what I mean? But they both grew up in like very traditional Catholic households in suburbs of Chicago. Yeah. And it was like, it was weird. It was like a, it was, it was that transitional time in, in, in family dynamics where, you know, like, Women, women's lib happened, right? And my mother, like, kind of missed it a little bit. Like, she was, like, a little too old for it. Right. But she knew sort of inherently that some of these power dynamics weren't right in in the house, like domestic power dynamics with men. However, like, my dad worked a full-time job, and my mom, I guess, was expected to just raise us, but she sort of, like, was an artist herself, wanted to be an actress. I mean, I can't fucking know what she was thinking, but I do think there was a thing that was always a fucking push-pull for her in, like, being a stay-at-home mom. You know, she yeah. didn't... There was a division of labor. Your dad did this, your mom did that. Clear division of labor right. in the household. And I think that it was something that was really difficult for my mom and something that my father just expected. So your dad didn't make a huge effort to have... 
relationships and, and hands-on no, stuff with I mean, you No, and he was sister. like, for lack of a better word, grumpy. You <laughs> right. know? And I think that I recognize, and I write about this in the book, and I don't think anyone was thrilled about it in my immediate family, but I think it's mental illness. You know, my dad, I think, was depressed for a large period of my childhood. Yeah. I think he was just fucking depressed. I don't know if it wasn't the life he wanted. I don't know. I don't know what it was. When you are at that, you know, that seemingly really chaotic age mm -hmm. in the book, like 10 to 16, you mm -hmm. know, right in there. Really 10 to 18. Do you think that around that time you grabbed onto performing and acting because there was something there? Because in the book you say, all I wanted to do was be seen yeah. and to be wanted. Yes. Well, I think it's like... Everyone wants to be seen. That is one of the things that is sort of just the most universal, is that we all want to be seen in some way for whatever it is that we want to be seen for. Like, I wanted to be acknowledged and given credit for being really talented, and, and I wanted to be considered smart, and I don't feel like I was ever given that validation when I was a kid, that I was a smart kid, because I definitely did have ADHD, and I had weird, I had that trickle to mania, what is it called? Where you rip your hair out? Oh, right. You did? Mm -hmm. I can still, I can, I know exactly where it is, like right now. I ripped this little patch of hair out on the top of my head when I was in, I want to say second to fourth grade I would do it. I did it. And I would hide it with my other hair so my parents couldn't see it. Um, that's like an anxiety and yeah. I think it has to do with ADHD too. Um, but, you know, I had a hard, t I wasn't the kind of student that thrived in just a regular public school you know, you talk in the book about about your first sort of real professional job. It wasn't even really an acting job. Oh. It was it was <laughs> the Barbie job. Yes, it was sort of going to trade shows and modeling mm -hmm. as a real life Barbie. Which talk about the uh, Sam, the gender. But Sam, <laughs> yeah, I know it's insane. But also, GI Joes were there too. Just FYI. okay. Mm -hmm. So there were men. Fair enough. But you know, in that job, I did have a great deal of text to memorize. You did? Yeah, like 9 to Maybe 15 Maybe that's where the pages. memorization came. You're like, this is my ticket out, and your brain just said, okay, I'm going to learn how to do just this. Just turned it on. Yeah. But yeah, I had like like 9 to 15 pages of text that I would have to recite to the buyers, the toy buyers that would come in, and I would have to do it in the Barbie voice. What is the Barbie voice? Well, I think I just did a version, like a heightened version of my own voice, you know, where I would just do like a higher doll voice. Right. But you're giving like statistics. I'm like, Mattel projects 4% growth in all markets between Asia and, you know, like whatever. You're just like nonsensical and fucking you're, bullshit, you're, but you're dressed like a Barbie. And you're speaking to like business guys in suits. From that, all, that yeah, from like, all over the world. Some, some of them like didn't speak English. They were toy buyers. But like from like huge corporations to small, at this point, you know, Amazon, the box thing hadn't like happened, right? right, right. So, you know, people had toy stores everywhere. Right. And so all these people would descend upon New York City once a year. It was kind of wild. It was wild. Such a weird thing. But it also was incredible because I got paid a lot of money when yeah. I was a teenager, and that was so dope. Well, you describe this thing in your book where after doing mm -hmm. this job, you had to come back and go back to high mm -hmm. school. And it was like you had glimpsed what you're supposed the to be future. doing with your life. Yeah. And I related to that so much, this idea that you know what you have to do, but then you have to sit there and wait. And you had a vice principal at that point tell mm -hmm. you that 
you were never going to be an actress. Yeah, and, that, and, that it's not a viable career, that I right. should look at something else, and that, you know, really to just get my head out of the gutter or whatever. Yeah, it was wild. I was curious what gave you the confidence to think you could do it on the highest level. Because I thought I was just incredibly talented and deserving. Like, I felt like it was meant and that it was like, it's. it sounds, I mean, it, as a true grown-up now, maybe, I think I'm a grown-up. Um, it sounds crazy when I think back on it, but I really just had this belief in my core that I was just destined to do this thing, and it was just going to happen for me, and I was going to, and this is, I mean, but this is also how my life works, right? I was convinced that I would go to Loyola Marymount University for college, and my mom had always said, well, my mom had said when I was in high school and I said, I want to just move to L.A. afterwards and be an actress. And she said, no, that's not, you're not allowed to do that. You need a core foundation. I need you to get through at least two years of college. And sure enough, I got Freaks and Geeks second semester of my sophomore year and I never went back. So I did two years of college and then I was on television. So when you walked on set on <laughs> Freaks and Geeks first day, what was the anxiety level? I remember it very well. I went to my trailer. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I saw Jason Segel. I said hi to him. Um, they were filming the ending dance scene, right. which is one of, I mean, truly one of the greatest endings of any pilot I've ever seen, the Come yeah, Sail Away. for sure, yeah. So they were filming all that, but I was, like, too nervous. I didn't, I was just going to go where they told me, so I just stayed out at the village, you know, where all the trailers were and kind of, like, smoked cigarettes and, like, looked at scripts and, like, tried to see who was around and if there was anyone to talk to. And Linda came at some point and said hi. She was, But she was in the middle of, like, a very busy day. And, right. You know. God, so you, and, and. I just tried to play it cool, Sam. I just, like, like you, I just was like, I don't want, like, you on first day of Cougar Town, I didn't want anyone on the loudspeaker saying, we've made a mistake. Yeah. Cut. Let's get her out of here. So I just was like, wherever they tell me to go, whatever they tell me to do, put my wardrobe on, hair, makeup, just sat there and waited. And then toward the end of the day, they called me in and Linda was already wrapped. Everyone was already basically wrapped and they just did the side looking at us. And so we had to act, you know, as if we were watching them dance. But, right. I, you know, and I'd never done that before. Um, and they just told me where to look. And, and then I, you know, did the little bit and that was it. And I remember just the relief. And I remember driving home on those freeways that I didn't know on the east side because I was fairly new to Los Angeles and just feeling, you know, at dusk kind of and just feeling this overwhelming sense of like, this is the place, man. You fucking did it. And it's crazy that your first experience ever is on a show that was way ahead of its time. Yeah. I and mean, there's no Stranger Things without Freaks and Geese. Come on. Uh, totally. <laughs> uh, completely. And, and, and to land there and have that be the model, um, although... I will say that, you know, I sort of had, in, until reading your book, I sort of thought that was the safest, most wonderful place yeah. for a young actor to it, land. It was in so many ways. Yeah. It truly, truly was. It was like the, the very, very best version of what that thing could be, especially for a 19-year-old young woman starting in this industry. Um, because, you know, 
I was protected from the body stuff. That didn't come till later, like right. the weight stuff and you're not good enough the way that you look and all of those things. Like that, they, those guys had none of that thing. And then also they, those guys, Judd and Paul and um, Jake, were incredibly empowering to all of us um, in terms of making us feel, even though we were all young, young actors, that our... Um, ideas were valid and that there was that this was a place for collaboration which on a network television show especially in 1997 right it was like that's cr- i didn't even i had no idea how well, crazy that was well that's the strange thing is that that's what you think television is at that point right and that's your blueprint and then it ends so quickly i know it was such a bummer i remember hysterically crying multiple times about it um, I remember going to the rap party, which was really fun, and we did karaoke, and I got wasted because, you know, um, I was 20. <laughs> you know, that's I just was 20. what you do. <laughs> I was 20, excited to be there with the alcohol. And, um, and I remember my boyfriend at the time, Colin Hanks, yes. was driving me home in his uh, car, and um, I was wearing this pink wig, and I was, like, hysterically crying. And he was like, I mean, it's going to be fine. You know, you'll work. And I was like, you don't understand. This was it. Like, this was everything. <laughs> I, like, lost my shit in the car. I'm sure freaking him out. I also had a disposable camera with me, and I took a selfie. Of you me, did? Of me crying with the wig on, like, the whole thing. Really? Oh, yeah. So performative. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and I and I remember really being so deeply, deeply sad about it. But also, like, I knew that pilot, like, we could, I couldn't do any pilots, like, because they weren't sure about the show for a while. Oh, so so, so the pilot season passed me. Okay, so it wasn't like I could just jump onto another show or something. I did have to wait. I kind of thought, I don't know, I, I didn't know, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I didn't get paid a ton on that show, so. Money was like something I had to think about. Right. And I read that the next year the pilot season came around, you tested for nine Everything. pilots mm-hmm. and didn't book one. Mm-hmm. And that must have been hard, especially for somebody who, you know, the rejection was hard for. It was really hard for me. I was applying for like jobs in retail and stuff. Oh, you were? So yeah. you were like on the verge of being yeah. like kind of yeah. having to go back out. Yeah. Gosh. I, I think what I took away from it was every incidence of stuff that that was outside of that bubble of freaks and geeks that Mm -hmm. you had to deal with sort of chipped away at the original yeah but also the freaks and geeks and the thing with james i think did was impactful too. well i was shocked at at what had happened to you on that because i just sort of have this thing in my head that freaks and geeks was this but that's the fucking message dude is that men are allowed to be crazy geniuses and women better show the fuck up and say your lines and hit your marks and be skinny and be better and be faster and be funnier and be on time and hang your wardrobe when you're done and goodbye or you're done and so i was like all right that's the message dude i know how to work hard i worked at california pizza kitchen I know how to work hard. <laughs> you, you said in the book that women are expendable. Yes. That was the message I was given very early on in Hollywood. And that's sad that that was even the case. And, and the, what you describe is that James Franco uh, blew up at you once and mm-hmm. knocked you onto the ground. Mm-hmm. And basically action wasn't taken. No. But, you know, what's interesting, I mean, action, what, I mean, whatever. They talked to him and he apologized to me. That was the action that was taken. By the way, that shit today, that kid's done. That kid's done today. Right. right. And 
okay, I'm okay with that. And I like James and we are good now. I mean, and we have been for years and part of oh, my heartbreak when the book was coming out was that all of the things that I was sharing that were so deeply personal and things that had happened to me that it would be extrapolated and turned into clickbait for people to come at me and call me horrible names or pass judgment on me without reading the whole story. And um, and I was quite frankly shocked that that was the that was the story that got taken and just blown out of proportion. By Did the, that happen? Oh, it was like a really, really rough, yeah, it just wouldn't stop. And the craziest part about it is that I talked about it publicly um, in like 2010 or something like that. And um, James and I had talked about it and told the story on a panel for Freaks and Geeks years earlier. Like this is a thing that was like, not a secret. No, everyone knew this story. It sucked. And, you know, it was painful for me. And he apologized to me later. I mean, at the time, I feel like he, he truly, like, how I describe it in the book, he just, like, was like, I'm sorry, that wasn't cool. And kind of got away with it a little bit, right. you know? Um, later in life, when he was a little bit older, we, we saw each other and he... Like genuinely apologized and was like, that wasn't, I did a lot of weird shit then and I'm sorry. Like that was weird of me. Well, I think the context has changed. And when you put it in your book as one of weekly, monthly examples of things like that, that that you just had to deal with as part of the deal, then the context does change rather than a a one incident that you're on a panel or one story. Right, right. You you know what I mean? I think. But I mean, for me, the clickbait of it in regards to my book and the point that I was actually trying to make was that I wrote this really personal, deep fucking memoir about my experience being a woman in this particular time in history and doing this in Hollywood and all the fucking headlines leading up to the release of the book were about a dude. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes. Oh, now, okay. So now my story's even been reduced even further and now I'm like the fucking bitch trying to like pile on James Franco, like, go fuck yourselves! (laughs) I was like, you can't win! Like, I was so mad. And by the way, James is fine. Like, we're fine. Yeah. And I felt like I I was really, really upset about it because I felt like it took away from what I was actually trying to say and the and the overarching theme of the thing. And um, and then ultimately I had to let that go. You know, I can't I can't be responsible for, you know, the celebrity culture that I am a part of and that we all live in right now. Well, look. That all fades, but the book stays. Right. The story stays. Thanks, Sam. The thirteen-year-old gets to read it. The (laughs) twenty-five-year-old woman who's starting in there. Your daughters get to read it. And if you take the time to read the whole book, I mean, anyone who's responding to clickbait is pretty much saying they don't have an attention span anyway, and they don't really care to go any deeper. And you can't even worry about those people. But I think when a woman takes the time to tell the entire story, because mm-hmm. you were hard on yourself in that book. I'm really fucking hard on myself. And, and you're hard on yourself as a kid. Yep. You, were, you are the first one to claim responsibility for the mistakes you made. Yeah. But when, when taken all together as an artist, I just, I just read that and go, well, she had to fight every day to do the things she loved, and mostly because of her gender. Yeah. And just because that's the way things are done. Mm-hmm. And you love it enough to put up with it. Right. And, and, and to keep yeah. moving forward. I mean, I think uh, there's also a story in the book about 
party down. Mm-hmm. That was really heartbreaking for me. I think that is indicative of the body stuff, the body issues that you had to deal with. Yeah, I mean, that really, the body stuff really started on Dawson's Creek. Um, but then, you know, after I had my daughter, Birdie, it, I had gained a lot of weight with my, in my pregnancy. I was really, I really went, went for it. My body likes to be pregnant. I get, I get, I gain a lot of weight. I cook real good babies. Anyway, uh, so Party Down was one of the first shows that I went out for, auditioned for. I bet Birdie was probably four months old at the time. Right. And I was still losing the baby weight. Like if I wanted to give you a visual, I was probably 20 or 30 pounds heavier than I am right now. Uh-huh. And I went in, and Rob Thomas was amazing, and Adam, we, I read with Adam, and it was, it was just great. It just was like, I know, here's the one thing I will say, like, I know when I'm nailing it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, when it's my when fucking it's part. when it's yours. Yeah, when it's my fucking part. And, um, and I just felt, I just knew it. I knew it was. And they agreed, the creative team agreed, and um, the network, and, and, and even, I feel like I had had this conversation with them with Rob Thomas maybe because I had just had the baby and he had just had a baby. And I think in the room I had this conversation with him which was I also think like this weird added cool layer to this girl could be that she's like moved here from the Midwest where she was doing comedy and she's moved to Los Angeles to do comedy and she's forced to lose weight. That's like a thing that happens to, I mean, we've seen it again and again like the you know, you move to Los Angeles and all of a sudden you have a nose job and you've like lost 30 pounds, right? And also in the book I go into this, but I had been having some like crazy financial issues too at this right. time. Right, you were upside down on a mortgage. On a house, and, uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it was like a real... Was that 2008? It was, it was right when it crashed. Yes. I was like a part of the housing market crashing. Of course, of course I was. You have to hit every crisis our <sighs> nation get there. goes through. I gotta, you know, it's who I am. Um, the hard way. You take the hard way. I only do things the hard way. So, um, so yeah, it just everything was right. Everything was aligned. It felt like this was the exact right thing. It was going to happen. I was going to get this show. They wanted me. I wanted it. I was going to get paid. Things were going to turn around, whatever. And um, I remember, I mean, I again, I have the best memory of all time. But um, I was breastfeeding Birdie in her rocker in her nursery. And my agent, Lori Bartlett, called me, and I could tell, like, from the second I, she said hello, that it wasn't, that something was not going to happen. It wasn't happening. And um, she just deeply apologized, and she said, Biz, you know, the creative team wanted you. Rob Thomas loves you. He wants to write you an email. Um, the network wasn't willing to go there with the wait. And they really feel like this is the so this is the romantic lead of the show, and they really physically they want it's bullshit. I don't know what to tell you, but they want something else. And the thing that's most insidious about that story is you published the letter or the email. I asked Rob. Rob by the way, I emailed Rob Thomas and I asked his permission, obviously. Well, this and, is, I'm not yeah. a lawyer. Oh, okay. No, no. no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to know. Yeah, no, no. It's, he it's, knew that I was putting it in my book. I was so happy you put that email in the book because it's clear that all the creatives and, and everyone involved creatively on that story was in line with thinking this was your part. And it was this insidious corporate level of... Mm-hmm. 
she is not acceptable mm-hmm. to uh, visually uh, visually to audiences. Yeah. That's the part that sort of seems like in terms of you doing this career for 20 years and, and dealing with that specific kind of rejection that uh, that it, it would take away your love of the thing that you were born to do. Right. You know, and that upsets me to no end that that is part of our culture mm-hmm. in such a big way in entertainment because it's right back to the same thing of, of your mother's friends not being able to wear bikinis and, and if, if that's what our kids watch on television and that's the message they get that that successful people on television only look a certain way. But also, Sam, like even now in hearing myself recount the story to you about Party Down, I'm like, how fucked up am I that I even thought that I needed to justify my weight my, as the character, that she was going to be losing it? Right. How fucked up? Why? Well, uh, That's but, just her body. But you know what? You were trying to help them. I know. I know. I know that this is the way the business works. And I know that this is how it goes. So let me help these guys. Right. But when we talk help about me. representation, obviously we know for a fact that it matters. And it does matter so much in front of the camera, the types of people that we see represented and the stories being told. But, you know, for me, I think what will be true equality is when we get the heads of the networks and the people that are making the choices um, as diverse as possible because I think you're they're just clearly more likely to make projects that they see themselves reflected in yes and their own values reflected in and so for that guy the head of the network at the time or whatever he's like I wouldn't fuck that girl no let's get someone I would fuck you know that's what it came down to, ultimately. That's the ugliest side of, but that's, of this business. That's it. That's the fucking baseline. Is that guy held all the power, had the approval, and was like, yeah, I'm not going to fuck that girl. Find one, I'll fuck. And by the way, probably thought about it for about nine seconds. Yeah. No, I can't. Mm, mm. I wouldn't have fucked him either, Sam. <laughs> that is exactly what he's dealing with. And that's why he, he did that. Because he's a broken, hurt man inside, too. My heart does not break for him, for no, those people. I understand that completely. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Hey, folks, let's take a short break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Butcher Box. So if you're like me, you want fresh quality food all the time, and sometimes you can go into your local market and just not be inspired by what's there. Well, now there's Butcher Box, and how it works is that you choose from curated boxes, including a mix of high quality beef, chicken, and pork, or you can customize your own box. The meat is frozen at the peak of freshness in individual vacuum-packed biodegradable packaging, and all meat is delivered right to your doorstep. I was so impressed with Butcher Box when we got it at home, and I immediately made this great chicken dish, and it was better chicken than I've gotten in the market in years. The next night, we did some steaks, and they were fantastic too. And with Butcher Box, you're always going to get high-quality, healthy protein you can trust. They use 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork. That's old-world pork before they bred out all of the fat and flavor to make it the other white meat. And ButcherBox bacon is sourced from heritage breed pigs and is uncured, nitrate-free, and sugar-free. ButcherBox believes in a healthier food system where everyone has access to meats the way nature intended, free of antibiotics and hormones, and humanely raised on open pastures. So you can cook with the peace of mind knowing you're feeding your family healthy, high-quality meat. 
You can think of ButcherBox as your neighborhood butcher, delivered right to your door on dry ice. And they have free shipping anywhere in the 48 states. Choose your delivery frequency with the customizable subscription. And this month, ButcherBox is offering the ultimate breakfast bundle. This includes two packages of bacon and two pounds of breakfast sausage, all free in your first box. Their bacon is some of the best bacon you've ever had. It's Whole30 approved, uncured, nitrate, and sugar-free. The sausage is a healthy, authentic version of a classic-style pork sausage, simply seasoned with salt, pepper, and sage. And right now, new members will get two packages of bacon and two packages of breakfast sausage added to your first box for free. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first box. So it's an amazing deal. Go now while supplies last, as this is a limited-time offer. And I have to tell you, from my experience, having a box of quality protein delivered to my door was a great thing. And for me, I keep all the staples at home, but I always want to get fresh meat, so I end up having to go to the store a lot. But with ButcherBox, I had it all right there, and it was a great experience. So here's the deal. Get the ultimate breakfast bundle, that's two packages of bacon and two pounds of breakfast sausage, for free in your first box, plus $20 off your first box by going to butcherbox.com slash off camera or enter the promo code off camera. Now back to the show. Well, you did say in your book that the ghost of Merv Griffin visited you in the yeah. desert and told you you should have a talk show. I was pretty high, but yeah. And I feel like <laughs> the ghost of Merv Griffin never visited me. Does is, is that mean I'm in the wrong place here? I don't think so. Okay. I think that you have an innate curiosity about people and you've been taking their pictures and seeing into their souls for many years and you wanted to know the stories behind it. I think we're just going to use that underneath okay. the poster that we don't have for the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about the most lovely description ever. Thank you for, for what I'm trying to do here. But, but you... Um, you came to that realization uh -huh. that you should do that. And you say in the book, the 20 years I was acting, the rejection never got any easier. But I did wonder if there was a moment that gave you pause where you're like, I'm going to, I don't know if, it's, I don't know if you put a, find a pin on it is right. to say I'm going to quit acting. But, but sort of to go to another side of the business mm -hmm. and if it felt like this huge relief when you, when you realize like people love me, I've found out that I'm okay putting my public life out there. Like, right. how did that feel when you made that decision? Well, you know, I was, it all sort of happened simultaneously. I was working on the book when I had this epiphany that, that I wanted to do a late night talk show. When Merv came. When Merv came to me in the desert. Um, and, you know, I, I knew, I felt like the book was really good and I really believed in my own book. Um, and uh, and I had, I guess, a little bit of a similar experience with the late night talk show thing that I had when I was 17 years old moving to Los Angeles. I just really, from the moment I had the idea that that's what I'm gonna do next, it was like, there's no fucking question. I'm doing this thing. Like, I'm not only doing it, it's gonna work and it's gonna be successful and I'm going to do this thing and build this show. And not that I had any idea about any of it. I had to go in and sit down at ICM with all new agents. And I sat across from them and I said, I feel like you're not really understanding what I'm telling you. I'm going to have a late night talk show and I don't want it to be political in 
nature in terms of like overt Trump jokes, but I want to be able to be subversive in my feminism and my belief system. Um, and I think, and take that to the masses. You know, By the way, they, I don't think your feminism is even subversive. I think it's just like right out there. Thank you. Well, and thank it's, you. And it's good. And I think they were very taken aback by my confidence and my boldness and my longtime theatrical agent Lori Bartlett sat into the meeting with me obviously and she was just laughing she was like I know you like when you have a bee in your bonnet man you know what you want and just like that it was kind of just like that amazing I, I mean, it's so dumb. No, but it's a, it's a testament to your your own belief that that if you really want something, it happens, and so far that works. And and I wonder, you know, after after reading your book, I wonder if you wake up with a different feeling now than you used to as as an actor in terms of in terms of your day and the trials you're going to face. Right? Has it changed? Oh, it's so different. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because I'm doing everything, and I'm such a control freak. I really am. I really admire my career as an actor <laughs> from this perspective now. I'm really, so? I'm really impressed with myself. <laughs> really? In yeah, what I really way? Do. I really am. I really see, I really do see that I, that, you know, while it was hard and there were, and I think the book really helped with this too. You know, they say writing a memoir is like doing 10 years of therapy and I'm sure. Yeah, in well, a year. In your case, it's like 20 years of therapy. True. And, yeah. and things that like my therapy never even covered, you know what I mean? Or didn't help with. Um, and things that I figured out and patterns that you see, you really see the patterns in your life. Um, but yeah, I have, um, I, I see a lot of, I mean, first of all, just the fact that 20 years that I worked consistently as an actor for 20 years, was it always projects that I was like, oh, the, you know, is the most exciting thing ever. No, sometimes it wasn't, but it was, it always propelled me and moved me forward and got me to this place that I'm at now, which is, you know, where I feel like I'm supposed to be. And to be honest with you, you know, we've only been doing the show since the end of October. Right. And I feel like we're really hitting a stride. I feel like the shows are getting really good. I feel like I had like kind of, um, I might cry now. I might cry, Sam, shit. Um, I had kind of like an intense moment on my set when Courtney was there, you know, and my Cougar Town friends came to support me. And I was like um, looking around like Nelson, my producer, and Jasmine, the associate producer that we hired, and you know, all of these people that like are there because of me. Like I, I got to pick those people and put them together and do that and give people chances. Yeah. And we're, I'm employing so many women. And so, you know, and so we have so much diversity and so much representation on our staff and, and I'm really proud of it. Well, I think it has its own identity. I think it's really, um, because the way you feel and because, you know, whether it was the memoir and, and you getting to know yourself, there's a strong component of telling stories that haven't been told in that space. And I think that you are, I mean, it's like when you were saying, you're apologizing to your husband for the mm -hmm. traits you're putting in your daughter. Mm -hmm. You were giving them this strength and this base from all the trials you went through yeah. and all of the stuff that you had to work out. And it's a massive gift and they're going to be so much better for it. And I think you're impressive. Thanks, Sam Jones. Yeah. I think you're impressive, too.
Well, I also think that taking this career pivot is is wild. It is wild. And I have days where I'm like, why did I do this? Why am I not just like number two on the call sheet showing up to work? And and I remember, you know, I, I have always heard like people say the thing, like creatives say the thing, like do things that scare you. And I always in my career thought like, what the fuck is that? I'm just waiting for someone to give me a job. Nothing scares me. I'm an actor. I can do whatever you want me to do. I'm not scared by any roles I get, you know? This is the most terrifying job of all time. Every yeah. day. It seems like you are genuinely being yourself, and I think that's so hard to do, and you have to be able to accept yourself to be able to do that and, yeah. and put that out there, and it is hard, it's really but hard. It, I'm sure ultimately it's really fulfilling, and thank you for doing this. Thanks, Sam. Hey folks, that's our show. If you found that conversation as interesting as I did, go out and get Busy's new memoir, This Will Only Hurt a Little. The things that we touch upon in this conversation, she goes very deep into in her book, and it's an inspiring and thoughtful read. Also, you can check Busy out four nights a week on E! Entertainment Television on her talk show, Busy Tonight. Now, I certainly enjoy you listening to our talk show, and if you want to know more about it, you should go to offcamera.com. At offcamera.com, you'll find out that we are not just a podcast, but we are also a television show and a magazine. If you haven't seen the show that you've been listening to, we are on DirecTV's Audience Network, channel 239, or you can get our monthly subscription right there at offcamera.com, and for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive of shows, which is now, dare I say it, creeping close to that 200 number, which blows my mind every day. You can see all of these shows as many times as you want on any device you want by subscribing right there at offcamera.com. So check that out. Now, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're new to it, take a minute, go to iTunes and subscribe so that you never miss an episode into your feed. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. If you do that, more people can find the show and we can keep doing this for a long time. Also, you can find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you like what you're hearing, don't keep it to yourself. Go on social media, tell people about Off Camera. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your followers that we are the show that brings iconic, original artists every week to your ears and get really into their creative path, their struggles, and their travails along this creative path. You can also reach me by sending me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And as you could probably hear from my voice, I have a little cold right now. So you can send guest suggestions. You can send your own personal stories about your own career. You can ask for bad advice. Or you can just send me some good cold remedies. But I always love to hear from you. And it's interesting to see what our listeners are doing with their lives, what creative paths they're following. And so share that with us. I want to thank everybody that works on this show Without them, we couldn't do a show, and I'm very lucky to have the following people in the office every day. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. And thank you to you as well for tuning in and for being a part of what we're doing. Off Camera is something I feel very lucky to be able to do, and it's so exciting to me that this show can reach all across the globe. It's my honor and privilege that I get to do it. So thank you for listening and tuning in. 
And be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actor, writer, director, comedian, and producer, Seth Rogen. Before Green Hornet came out, it felt like very early on we weren't really going to do what we had hoped to do. We had never gotten, like, notes, really. We had written Superbad and Pineapple Express for Sony. They both had done really, really, really well. And then all of a sudden, it was like, all right, time for our four-hour notes meeting. Like, page one. Why does he say this? Page two. That seems like a big chunk of dialogue. I remember just being like, what the fuck? Like, I feel like I was like, what is happening right now? And they were like, we're giving you notes. And I was like, wait. You hired us, we thought, because we've written two good movies for you guys with none of your input. Right. Why do you think the third one, all of a sudden, with all this input, is going to be better? It was so stupid. <laughs> Since dropping out of high school at age 16 and joining the cast of Freaks and Geeks, Seth has been churning out his own brand of movies and television and reshaping the comedic landscape in the process. But he started at an even earlier age, writing his first draft of his hit film Superbad with writing partner Evan Goldberg at the impressionable age of 13. Now a seasoned veteran of Hollywood with 21 years of experience under his belt, Seth still strives to stay in touch with the things that got him here in the first place. See you next time, off camera.